0: So, Angela, Mother's Day is coming up.
1: Yes, I'm aware.
0: Okay. So, back in April, I asked our double shift Instagram community in our stories what they wanted for Mother's Day after this year of I'm waving my hands frantically, everything. Mm-hmm. And can I please read you some of their responses? Oh, yeah, please do. Okay. A day totally to myself, a fucking minute to myself. <laughs> oh. A whole day off. (laughs) A trip to Hawaii all by myself. (laughs) I'm noticing some themes. I'm seeing some themes here. (laughs) Yes. Sleep, solo, vacation. (laughs) An entire day alone. Yes. Okay. You're seeing some themes. I literally have dozens more. And I just want to say, double shifters, those are very valid reactions to this past year. We hear you moms. Yes, you deserve all of those things all the time alone. Yes, I deserve it. Catherine, you deserve it, and we need it. Yeah, we need it. But we also got what I would call some very double-shifty answers Hmm. that ties what moms actually deserve right now to the token acknowledgement and the one day of appreciation that is modern Mother's Day. So one double-shifter wrote, Either universal childcare or a stipend for stay at home parents. I'm not picky. I'll take either. Oh, I love this person.
1: Um, I know. But also, I want to push back a little bit and ask, why not both? As why long not as both? we're,
0: as long as we're asking, you know. Yeah, both and both and right. And so, I've just been mulling all of these responses to what people are saying, which is basically that they need space from the unrelenting caregiving from this past year plus and acknowledgement of how frigging hard this time has been. Yeah. So as Mother's Day approaches, we are going to explore some fascinating and little-known history as to why care work inside the home is not visible, valued, and paid for and
1: do a deep dive into some pivotal moments that we're pretty sure most double shifters don't know much about. I mean, we definitely didn't. Nope. That have led to so much of Mother's labor being invisible and unpaid. But this isn't just a looking back where it all went wrong episode.
0: Nope, nope, nope. Angela and I are actually going to really think expansively and creatively about how we can start to make a different world and why both of us are optimistic that there is tremendous potential for big, big, big social changes going forward. This is The Double Shift, the show that challenges the status quo of motherhood in America, and I'm your host, Katherine Goldstein.
1: And I'm your co-host, Angela Gargas. We are taking inspiration from amazing activists and thinkers, some listeners may not have heard of, like Johnny Tillman, who led the National Welfare Rights Organization.
0: And some you probably have heard of, like another wonderful Angela, Angela Davis. <laughs> yes, the other Angela. <laughs> the other Angela, we like to call her. Yeah, yeah I'm really
1: excited about this. Um, we are covering a lot of ground today, including talking to author Sarah Jaffe.
0: And a lot of the history we're about to talk about is documented in her book, Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone.
1: So Sarah is not a mom. And we're having her on the double shift on Mother's Day in part because she speaks so powerfully against this every-family-for-themselves mentality that we really seem to be stuck in, and about how the issues that so many moms are facing around being overwhelmed by care work should actually be considered everyone's responsibility.
2: I just think if we actually started from this position that we actually care about everyone— that would put us in a much better place, right? Because we would actually care that parents who are dealing with this individualized crisis are losing it, and people who are locked up alone are losing it, and kids are losing it, and teachers are losing it, and like all of these things matter. And they can't just be like one or two other people's problem to fix.
0: We'll hear more from Sarah later, but first, let's go all the way back to one of the ways this care work became something so tied to individual families, further back than the rise of the nuclear family in the post-World War II era.
1: Okay, so just a heads up that we're going to nerd out a little bit here. Super nerdy. (laughs) Right. So we're going back, (laughs) all the way back to 17th century Europe. Yes. Yes. So join me in my little time machine, uh, to when we moved away from planting
0: and harvesting together in the fields, in a feudal system. Side note: feudal system not so great, but we're gonna not get into that so much right now. <laughs>
1: we're going to uh, table talking about the problems of feudalism to talk about the problems of capitalism. Really, more our jam. Yes. So <laughs> around this time, we're moving from feudalism to capitalism, and. We weren't, you know, communal workers. We became workers earning wages from employers. Right. And that really made people's pursuits become much more individual. Mm. And so having a child or children or having a family, people to pass wealth and belongings down to, that became a way for people to protect and hold on to what they had worked for. Right. Okay. Yeah. So in pre-capitalist Europe, women actually had some degree of autonomy and ability to have a professional life outside of the home. They were butchers, shopkeepers, and smiths. But because they're the ones who can give birth to babies, they started to be seen as, you know, vessels for reproducing and producing Mm -hmm. future workers and heirs and really building the family unit. And wives, they became the property of their husbands. Oh, God. And women's bodies and sexuality, these became things to control. Does that sound familiar? Yes. Yes, Yes. This is what happens in a society that's organized around private property and building wealth within families.
0: Right. So, this is when we start to see this idea that housework and child rearing is our destiny as women. Like, this idea really takes hold in the cultural imagination, and over time, this evolved into the idea that women can and should just do this labor as a labor of love.
1: Exactly. So for employers and capitalism to keep chugging along and making money, people really needed to buy into this idea that... Work, and I'm using finger air quotes here. Work was something that happened out in the real world. And specifically, that's a man going out and getting paid and then coming back home.
0: And he comes home to a woman who, by her naturally selfless and loving nature, <laughs> she just is there to exist and feed, support him, comfort him, and care for his offspring. So then he can go back out to work the next day and the next day and the next day in this capitalist machine every day after.
1: Mm-hmm. And all of this rides on the belief that housework, caring for people, this is just what women do.
0: And these ideas... This construct, it worked, right? I mean, these ideas got reinforced and built on for centuries. And actually, a lot of American culture and working life is still based around these ideas from 17th century Europe. Yes, and I mean, I need only to look inside myself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) To see how deeply these things are ingrained, no matter how much rationally I don't believe in them. Hmm. And so it's coming at all levels. And we have seen it reinforced at the government level in our laws and policies.
0: So one 20th century example of how this has been reinforced was the introduction of the idea of the family wage. Um, And this was created during the New Deal, which gave workers a guaranteed minimum wage that would be high enough to support a whole family on one salary.
1: Now, that sounds like a great idea. Right? Yes. Yes. But (laughs) it wasn't universal, not at all. It was really geared towards white men, and it definitely enforced ideas that women shouldn't be working outside the home, and if they Mm. did... They shouldn't be paid as much, and they certainly shouldn't take, quote-unquote, men's jobs.
0: And also, there was a lot of sexism and racism in how the family wage played out, because it didn't include agricultural workers, a large number of whom were Black men, and domestic workers, a lot of whom were Black women. So it intentionally excluded these groups from the guaranteed minimum wage.
1: That's right. So while on its face, the American family wage seems really generous, from the beginning, it was rooted in racism and sexism.
0: But there was some resistance to this, and it is no surprise that many women would reject the premise that domestic work be women's unpaid labor. Like, people didn't just blindly accept this in the 20th century. So the Wages for Housework movement was an international campaign which was started in 1974, and it was built on the belief that having children and doing care work is actually reproductive labor, and that women should be compensated for that labor.
1: Yes. I mean, I love that term, reproductive labor. It really gets Yes, it says so much. Yes. And by demanding wages, these women aligned themselves with other laborers, who most people would think of as a man out, like, working in the factory or something, men who had wages and unions and protections and rights. So these women explicitly rejected that housework was an expression of women's nature. And instead, they insisted that housework was really
0: forced upon us this is so fascinating and we will be back with sarah jaffe and more on these ideas in a moment so one of my personal obsessions that i think so many families should consider is co-housing Our episode, Don't Call Me Mom, Call Me Ted, was set in a co-housing community, and we've also talked about it in other episodes. With its common spaces and strong community, it offers kids freedom and independence to roam and connect with nature that is honestly hard to find these days, all with loving neighbors invested in your kids' lives. Right now, there's an opportunity to actually get in on a great community that's about to start construction. Cohousing ABQ owns four acres of land along the beautiful Rio Grande, just minutes from downtown Albuquerque. The community already has 12 kids and many aunties and grandparents, and they've supported one another through COVID and before, creating a culture of trust, fun, and care. All they need to be complete is you. Go to cohousingabq.org slash thedoubleshift to check out their website and sign up for an info session. Honestly, browsing this website, this place looks really dreamy, and I'm not going to lie, it kind of makes me want to pick up and move to Albuquerque. So go check it out and learn more about how co-housing ABQ can become your village. That's cohousingabq.org slash thedoubleshift. It's also linked in our show notes. Hey, Double Shifters, it's Catherine. I am so glad you're enjoying our rich back catalog of episodes. And as you may know, we aren't putting out new episodes right now, but we're doing some really cool work we want you to know about. And we'd like to stay in touch with you. Please sign up for our weekly newsletter, which is full of great storytelling and ideas about the forces that shape family life in America. To sign up, go to thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. Also, we have a robust member community that's full of amazing moms from all over the world with Zoom hangouts on super interesting topics like creativity and challenging the status quo at work. We're building more and more ways for you all to get to know and support each other. That's just so important right now. We're also planning some great member benefits like audio newsletters. So if you particularly like connecting with us through listening, it's a great way to keep double shift thinking in your ears and in your life. Also, we are a scrappy small business, and your support helps us do what we do. Thoughtful journalism that tells important stories and challenges the status quo of motherhood and beyond. To become a member, go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. So remember, sign up for our free newsletter so we can stay in touch with you. It's thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. And consider becoming a member. Go to com slash join. Membership starts at $5 a month. Thanks.
1: So Catherine and I wanted to look into this history of women who challenged the status quo, challenged the nuclear family, and demanded that women's labor be neither invisible nor unpaid.
0: And we learned that one of the most important and successful movements around this was led by the National Welfare Rights Organization, which was formed in 1966 and whose leaders were Black women.
1: Yes. At this time, welfare was called AFDC, Aid to Families with Dependent Children. And how welfare worked in the 1960s sounds like a good idea. Giving money to mothers to counter poverty. Logical. Yes. Yes. But the details and restrictions and enforcement of AFDC were rooted in very troubling ideas, Hmm. specifically that Black women were inherently lazy Hmm. and that the state had a right to control their bodies and their sex lives if they were receiving welfare.
0: And that's exactly what these women took issue with. Here's journalist
1: and author Sarah Jaffe with more.
0: The history of the thing we called
2: up until 1996, welfare, was aid to families with dependent children, which has its roots in the New Deal and these programs that were trying to stop the massive, huge amounts of poverty that were happening during Mm -hmm. the Great Depression. So one of the programs is that we are going to give money to women. And once again, this is based in this idea that women's job is to be in the home. And So this was designed for sort of widows, especially because back then they didn't really think that much about people getting divorced. Divorce rates were much lower. And so it goes sort of unnoticed. It's just it's there for several decades. And it was always means tested. It was always sort of invasive. But what happens in the 50s and 60s is that, like, finally these programs, because of civil rights agitation, start to be opened up to black women. Mm -hmm. and can't have that in America, right? Because, like, while white women are supposed to stay home and take care of their kids, black women are supposed to be doing the work somewhere else, probably paid domestic labor for a lot of that time um, before that slavery. So as black women start to actually get access to welfare benefits, they get the real punitive end of a lot of these policies. So there were things like, inspectors would come in and go through your underwear drawer because if you mm-hmm. looked like you were sleeping with a man, then that man ought to be paying for your kid and the government shouldn't be giving you welfare benefits. This is one of many things that this organized movement fought against. So, And it was led by women like Johnny Tillman, who was so cool. <laughs> um, so Johnny Tillman <laughs> is from Arkansas. She grew up doing laundry and picking cotton and moved to Los Angeles and ended up after having worked really damn hard in wage labor for most of her life, ended up on welfare and being treated with this incredible amount of suspicion around, like, you don't work hard enough. And so she started organizing in the housing project where she lived in Los Angeles. She organized a Mothers on Welfare group. And a bunch of other women were organizing in the same way around the country. They created the National Welfare Rights Organization in 1966. And they were basically organizing to get rid of all of these punitive parts of this. So you would have to prove that you weren't doing this and doing that, and they were trying to impose work requirements all the time. Again, sending people in to, like, go through your underwear drawer. And this was literally, like, 24-hour they had a right to come knock on your door if you were getting benefits.
1: So you're just being surveilled. Yeah, just absolute
2: surveillance. And yes. yeah. Right. And, and you could, you know, they would threaten to take your kids away, all of this stuff. So... They organized and won a whole bunch of reforms to this system in a whole bunch of different ways. But one of the things that they made a central focus was a guaranteed income. And mm. again, they wanted this to be for everyone. But this almost became law under Richard Nixon. And like the mm. one the, – the proposal that they made – I was actually just running these numbers yesterday, so they're fresh in my head – The um, NWRO's proposal was for five thousand five hundred dollars a year for a family of four, which is about thirty-eight thousand dollars in today's money. So, still not a lot to raise a family of four on, right? Still kind of tight, but But a a basic income, uh, right? Exactly. (laughs) Um, So, Nixon's plan would have been much lower than that. It actually would have been about the same numbers as the thing that that just passed the American Rescue Plan. So, it would be would have been slightly less per child, but it would also have had money for adults so this all gets killed because everybody is starting to freak out about work requirements and instead of getting a basic income they just get the work requirements even mm-hmm. as like this is about the same time as as supplemental social security right ssi gets passed so they're expanding the welfare state for some people making it even more punitive on these you know black women once again who have been speaking out about it And this continues, they continue to be scapegoated through the 70s and 80s and the 90s. And finally, we get the bipartisan ending welfare as we know it in 1996, which turns AFDC into a block grant, which is just money that the federal government gives to the states to do essentially whatever they want with it. And something like 26% of that money is actually going to people who need it now. And most of it's being spent on things like marriage promotion programs. Because of course it is. So, yeah. So quietly in this rescue bill that just passed finally is a reversal of so much of that and actually an admission Mm -hmm. that, like, raising kids is work, which was a central demand,
0: central point that these women were making. So just to go back so I can, just so, like, we can really sort of unwind for listeners how close this was to happening. Because I think a lot of times we think, like, the the things that didn't happen are sometimes as important in shaping the future as the mm-hmm. things that did happen. Absolutely. You know? So basically there was a proposal for a universal basic income, basically, for families. For all, that, all people. For, for all yeah. people, not just people with children. Right. That would have created a poverty floor. Yeah. So basically saying, like, if you live in America, like you will not inherently be wealthy, but we're gonna guarantee that you can have some basic amount of income and living conditions. Yep. And there was bipartisan support for this, and it died in the Senate, like everything good.
2: <laughs> Which it's is so probably basic. why we should abolish the Senate. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there were two bills. There was the one that was that NWRO backed and and wrote essentially that was proposed, um, introduced in Congress by Senator Eugene McCarthy. And that, would, that was the one that would have given people the equivalent for a family of four of, of $38,000 a year. Nixon's plan was much smaller. It was called the Family Assistance Plan. And it would have given $500 a year per adult and $200 a year per kid. So in today's dollars, a little over $3,000 per adult and a little over $2,000 per kid. And this um, got hung up in a mess in the Senate. Predictably, um, Southern Democrats were part of the problem because they often were. America, where so many things get tripped up in the Senate because of racism.
1: I was going to ask about that. I mean, when you're saying, you know, the way that Black women who were leaders in this movement were scapegoated— you know, I, I want to understand, I guess maybe it's not as complex as I want it to be of like, what happened? Like, was there always like building resentment around this work is supposed to be invisible? This is invisible labor or cheap labor that's hidden that we depend on black women and women of color to do, um, and be grateful for the work. Is it, is it rooted just in this resentment of taking power, taking up space? And then plus all these procedural sorts of things. So yeah, I guess I, mean, I just on, really on some I'm some desperate to understand. Yeah, what went no,
2: wrong. I mean, on some level it's just that simple, like the same way that paid domestic work and farm labor were written out of labor protections during the New Deal. It was yes. basically because these were the places where black people worked and Southern Democrats did not want to pass anything that gave money to black people because they were still mad that slavery had ended.
1: Mm-hmm. Which,
2: you know, again, at the time of the New Deal, 1935 was the Wagner Act it hadn't been that long there were people alive who remembered slavery you know um, <laughs> right like this was this was just not that long ago which is a thing i think we sometimes forget i mean on some level we have a very serious hang up which says that black people who are no longer slaves are somehow getting away with being lazy essentially mm-hmm. so ever since the end of slavery there have been a variety of laws in this country designed to make sure that black people work really hard and don't get paid very much for it. And that's everything from the Black Codes, Jim Crow, vagrancy laws were enacted mostly in the South, but all over the country to basically criminalize not working.
0: Okay. So, Angela, I've just got to stop for a second. Like, let's stop the presses Mm -hmm. and really (laughs) emphasize how wild this seems today. Yes. There was bipartisan bipartisan, Mm -hmm. Democrats and Republicans, support (laughs) for legislation that would give everyone a universal basic income. Mm -hmm. And that was supported by Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon. Yeah, that guy. (laughs) That that guy. (laughs) And everything was so, so close to happening. But instead of getting a universal basic income, we got... A new push to make work requirements for welfare. And then we started to see a large scale, multi decade effort to demonize welfare recipients mm-hmm. with the capstone of Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich together in <laughs> harmony, Gosh, ending those guys, <laughs> those two guys, ending welfare as we know it.
1: Yeah, it's amazing to consider the work that went into it that got to that moment. And then it's so painful to think about what didn't happen.
0: I mean, it's really hard to think about how different the last 50 years would have been and so much better if this original legislation had passed for a universal basic income back in 1969.
1: Yeah. That is exactly why the child tax credit provision in the American Rescue Plan that was just passed in March 2021 is such a big deal.
0: I am literally jumping up and down every single day about what a big deal this is and how exciting it is. As you
1: should be. That seems to me a very (laughs) appropriate reaction. Um, (laughs) And for those who haven't fully processed this, this is $3,000 per child up to age 17, and $3,600 per child under age six, basically for all families with slightly lower amounts going to people with higher incomes. And this money will be
0: distributed to families in monthly payments starting this July. This is a gigantic reversal in the trends around family policy. Like this provision isn't permanent right now, it's set to expire in one year, but this is like the moment that happened almost 50 years ago where, you know, we had this opportunity to make large-scale economic progress for families. And, like, we're we're experiencing the same kind of moment of potential right now.
1: Yeah. And I think about how, you know, a year ago, I couldn't even imagine that right. this policy could could possibly pass you know it feels like it took over half a million people dying Uh, in a global pandemic to make it a reality but um it's a good reminder that out of crisis comes possibility
0: Angela, our conversation with Sarah has me thinking about expanding possibilities. Like, certainly we want policies that actually acknowledge and support care work.
1: Absolutely, we want that. We need that at the policy, at the structural level. But I also think we need to just be thinking more expansively, like in our own lives, about our care communities. Yeah. You know, the reality of how we connect and build community right now. And I'm thinking, okay, to use the language of 2020, our pods, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, how often we say phrases like our chosen family or how we're having a Friendsgiving, right? Mm -hmm. These forms of kinship are so much more varied and inclusive than our institutions recognize.
0: Yes. And it really limits how we're able to come together and support each other, Mm -hmm. especially mothers who are carrying the heaviest load right now. And- You know, I think right now we have another opportunity to think about other relationships of care that we want to have and what other kinds of care structures are actually possible. Here's Sarah. We have
2: admitted as a society that moms are losing it during the pandemic and that maybe we should think harder about the amount of work that we have sort of privatized onto parents and specifically mothers. Angela Davis has a great essay on this, right? Um, um, It was sort of her response to the wages for housework movement. It's at the end of women, race, and class, and she talks about the approaching obsolescence of housework and, like, yeah, what would it look like to have, like, community teams to do this work to make it less sort of miserable and alienating and isolated? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think these are, are fun things to think about, right? And in finding these histories of resistance that are are so often, you know, hidden from us, there are, are great ways to start thinking about, like, how might we make this less awful? Yeah.
1: I mean especially in this moment because we've all I think you said it in an email to me we're locked down with our individual miseries that's mm-hmm. what, that's what I remember <laughs> like so much of housework and domestic work right now yeah. is so we're just alone in it and mm-hmm. that's what's what makes it so terrible so I love like I feel like There's that idea of this particular moment being a time to imagine things, right? To reimagine things. That seems like a very powerful moment, if we can harness it.
2: If we can harness it, yeah. Arundhati Roy said the the pandemic is a portal, right? And uh, where it takes us, I guess, that still ends up being up
0: to us. Where the pandemic takes us is up to us. I love that. That feels like such a provocation and a challenge. Yeah. And we are absolutely living in one of these, you know, moments of history that people are going to look back on as a turning point. For sure. And it gives me goosebumps a little bit because I think that there's still a chance for us to be a part of how this all turns out. Like, this is our moment to start demanding that our invisible and unpaid labor is seen and compensated.
1: I just got a little bit I got chills I have to say when you said that I'm getting I'm and that getting doesn't happen that often for me it. these days to be honest <laughs> um yeah I I agree and I share that hope and that belief and since Sarah mentioned it, I um, felt inspired, so I went back and reread what Angela Davis wrote in Women, Race, and Class. And this is interesting. She didn't actually agree with the wages for housework approach. You know, hmm. she points out that black women have been receiving wages for housework under poor working conditions for a really long time. But she did agree that housework can no longer be private. Hmm. One of the things that she thought was that childcare and meal preparation should be socialized. And I love this. She envisioned the industrialization of housework. Like, she imagined, and this is a quote, teams of trained and well-paid workers moving from dwelling to dwelling, engineering technology, advanced cleaning machinery. Wow. Yeah, and she insisted
0: that all of this be accessible to working-class people. I love this. Sign me up. Like, yes, (laughs) yes, let's do all that. Yes.
1: Yes. And, you know, it was really fun to spend some time with her ideas. You know, I was struck... By how, okay, so we have microwaves and we have dishwashers, and maybe you even have a robot vacuum. But in comparison to a lot of the other technological advancements made in society, housework has seen very little of that. Like, you know, we have self driving cars, but I feel like every day I'm just like, my life ultimately comes down to me and a sponge. (laughs)
0: Okay. <laughs> so i know for me it's so much sweeping just like nonstop sweeping crumbs off the floor chunks of food it's just yes right. i hear
1: you i mean i feel like we should have rosie from the jetsons at this point right like yes definitely and i mean maybe maybe there's no getting around that you know like we're always gonna have to do some level of housework like i can accept that but but why not think about industrializing a cleaning core that goes around so for this and you know it could be a good job and anyone from any income level could take advantage of it.
0: And also the idea of the cleaning core traces back a little bit to the idea that housework done together can be social. Like, this is a, this is an idea that has come up in, in Sarah's work as well. Yeah. I mean, I
1: read this in her book and I loved it. She said that one of the first group of domestic workers to organize were laundry workers. So this was before <laughs> machines. Laundry workers would gather together because they've all got their I'm doing the action of rubbing on a board, you know. Um, And so they could get together and talk about the work. They could, you know, bitch about their employers. But they started organizing and demanding better working conditions because of the social nature of the work that they were doing.
0: Right. So interesting. And, yeah, I mean, I think that this is, again, this is a moment for us to continue to use our imaginations and creativity and energy to sort of envision how this could be different in our future.
1: And so in that spirit, what do you think a future could look like? What do you
0: see? Well, so of course we can't predict. But the thing that I have been thinking about a lot is that I hope that this time of devastation will lead us to continue to form deeper connections with fewer people. And, you know, people really investing in their local communities and sort of who is around them and who they're living with. And, you know, some examples that I have been thinking about, and I think, like, we're probably going to see for a few years, like, everybody wanting their own space because of, like, the claustrophobia of COVID. But I Mm -hmm. think, like, maybe a further evolution, I do think we're going to see— more co-housing. I think we're going to see more intergenerational living, Hmm. more different kinds of cooperative living. And I also kind of wonder if we're going to move away from these big single family houses and we're going to be interested in smaller houses with more interconnected services, less time spent cleaning, less time spent on yard work, less time spent on making money to own a big house. Uh And, you know, investing more in community and community spaces
1: yeah like not having your own private castle with a moat as like the goal right right?
0: yeah I mean it's I, I think that you know this may not happen in 2022 but I do think out of this crisis because we've come to see that we can't do this on our own. We we need each other, that some of these ideas may start to take hold and become more and more popular. But I know you have thoughts on this, like this idea, especially around the deeper connections with fewer people. So I'd love to hear your ideas about this too.
1: I don't like to use the word pod. So um, the one family that we've really... Gotten close to this last year. I call them our co-family. I love that. <laughs> it seems so much truer to what our relationship is, which is so like special to me. But, um, I was like, I want to have more of that in my life. Right. You know, I don't want to have it with just this one family. Like I have friends that I haven't been seeing this year. Like I love being the go-to people for a family and I want more people to think of us in that way. And I want to be able to mm. go to other people. You know, like I feel like right. we've just been Socialized to do things individually or as an individual family but why right like we have some other friends who um they were saying you know we should really get together now that we can safely get together outside and they've been building this fence (laughs) they've been working on it for like two months and they're like we're Mm -hmm. just a few weeks away from being able to do it and then we'd love to have you over and my immediate response was like fuck that like let's have a work party. Like, let's build your fence, like, and let me hold your baby who's like six months old, who I have never seen and like, let's let our kids like, watch each other. Um, And I was thinking about that, like applying that to a larger thing. Like, what if instead of like, could you have four families who like rotate, right? Where you work in their yard, and then like order pizza and the children watch each other. And so it's not like everyone's just stuck in every weekend doing yard work by themselves. Right? right. Like these are very yes. like so I'm talking about like small, you know, micro levels of our families, but I just that's what I want to see more of, you know, that just expanding that idea of socializing housework.
0: Yeah, and I think again like realizing so much of our society is geared towards this ideas or these ideas around accumulating private property. Mm-hmm. And what are the very small ways that we can start to be more communal? in our socializing and in our offers and how we sort of create our communities and, you know, show that it's not about, you know, me having the perfect fence and spending all my time on it or having to work harder to hire someone to fix it. It's about, like, how can we do things a little bit more together? Yeah. And that's, like, that's those are the very small steps, I think, of envisioning more inclusive more valued and more fun like caregiving and invisible labor
1: it's also just i mean i feel like it's a a better way of living right what's the it's a phrase like many hands make light work right right? yeah and i you know i want to point out that there are people who are doing this right Right. their co-housing exists cooperative living is there i think like i kind of want to i want to turn to them and like find out like how do they do this how do worker cooperatives run um but I feel like it's the moment where, how can we move towards making that more of the standard rather than the exception? Yes,
0: I think I think this is a time where looking back in history and looking back at unique things that people are doing that are not mainstream can really be our guide forward. We are linking to Sarah Jaffe's book in the show notes, as well as that Angela Davis book we mentioned. And if you haven't already, make sure you're following us on Instagram. It's where we share articles, photos of guests we feature on the show, plus have the conversations like you heard at the beginning of today's episode on what people really want for Mother's Day. You can find us at The Double Shift. For next week, for our members, Angela and I calculate the dollar value of our invisible labor using the Invisible Labor Calculator, the COVID edition. You can find it on our website at thedoubleshift.com and in our show notes. Thanks to the wonderful Amy Westervelt, author of Forget Having It All, for creating it. Go ahead and plug in your own numbers, and you will be shocked or not about what your invisible labor is actually worth. And you can tell all your family and friends about it on Mother's Day. To hear that episode, become a member of The Double Shift. You get ad-free and weekly shows. Just go to thedoubleshift.com join to become a member. It starts at $5 a month. And if you're able to pay by the year, that helps us even more. We can't make this show without you. And in two weeks, in the main feed, Angela and I get honest about our mental health. Before and during the pandemic. The transparency train keeps on chugging. You do not want to miss it. The Double Shift is created and hosted by me, Katherine Goldstein. Our co host is Angela Garbes. Our senior producer is Rachel McCarthy. We're also produced by Asal Asani For. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our research assistant is Jada Hester. Music is by Travis Morrison and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme song is by Palehound. Our mixer is Corey Shuffle We are funded in part by the generous support of the Ford Foundation. And you are members. We can't do this without you. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and distributed. Thanks for being part of The Double Shift.